You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Drive Away Dolls. The case, Santos. Not on your life. Hello, girls. It's the last body shot competition, so we are going to salt you up. I've had it with love. I don't believe it's relevant to the 21st century lesbian. You're not wearing that. I just came from work. I came from Toledo. I don't dress like it. I'm not here to peddle my wares. I'm leaving town. I am too. That was my plan. Where are you going? Tallahassee, Florida. I've been unhappy. That's why we take this trip together, honey babe. We get our act together together. Curly's drive away. Pennsylvania's most trusted name in car delivery. Curly here. Don't call me Curly. And... Your name, Curly? My name is Curly. We just met. It's too familiar. All right, everybody. You were just listening to the trailer for Drive Away Dolls, and the story is as follows. In search of a fresh start, two women embark on an impromptu road trip to Tallahassee, Florida. However, things quickly go awry when they cross paths with a group of inept criminals along the way. The film is starring Margaret Qualley, Geraldine Vinswampian, Beanie Feldstein, Coleman Domingo, Pedro Pascal, Bill Camp, and Matt Damon. It is written and directed by Ethan Cohen and co-written by Trisha Cook. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Sarah Clements. Hello, hello. Dan Baer. Hello, baby doll. And Tom O'Brien. Hi, everybody. Okay, so Driveway Dolls. A couple of years ago, we got the solo directorial film from Joel Cohen, one half of the Cohen brothers with the tragedy of Macbeth. And now Ethan Cohen is here with his solo directed film, Drive Away Dolls. And this, this is a very interesting time to be a Cohen brothers fan, uh, especially if you have followed them throughout the 40 years of their career since Blood Simple seeing how they would get different uh, credits on films. But, you know, we all we were always told that they were pretty much co-directing all of their films anyway to officially getting uh, that co-director label to the point that they then became awards darlings. <laughs> I mean, I know Fargo was nominated for awards early on and so was like Barton Fink, but like it definitely seemed like the Coens entered into this new territory where all of a sudden they became quintessential award season players with each release of their films. But even going beyond that, just I feel like every time there is a new Coen Brothers release, it's like an event film for cinephiles. It's something to get excited over and something to rush out to the theater to see whether it's a drama or if it's a comedy, a genre film. It doesn't really matter. But what I think is most interesting about this distinction here now between Joel and Ethan is we can clearly see whose sensibilities are whose in terms of the types of stories that they want to tell, in terms of how they go about directing them, how they go about writing them. Uh, but with Driveway Dolls, it's definitely a very interesting one simply also because, too, it was supposed to be released, I I believe the rumor, from what I understand, was it was supposed to be either Venice or TIFF. I think this would have absolutely killed if it had its world premiere at TIFF. It was, however, delayed because of the pandemic. Now it is being released here in February. What did we think of it? I'm going to go over first to Sarah Clements. Sarah, kick us off here. What did you think of Driveaway Dolls? Um, yeah, like when you put the tragedy of Macbeth and Driveaway Dolls together, it's like way opposite of the spectrum. So I went in not expecting what I got, but I'm so pleased because as like a queer viewer, you know, most of the films 
like lesbians get or, you know, serious dramas that end up making me sob. So it was nice to just walk into a film that was just so unserious and pulpy and just did not give a shit about, you know, pandering to like kind of highbrow sen- sensibilities that I feel like most of their films do. But, um, and yeah, it was just, I felt like it was about time we got like nice trashy comedies. <laughs> So I really enjoyed it. And there's many of surprises along the way that I did not expect, but it was a fun ride. Makes for an interesting companion piece with bottoms, I feel, if anything. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Dan, how about you? What did you think of Driveway Dolls? So I saw this at a press screening quite a while ago. So I had to remind myself um, of the experience. And especially since I have encountered quite a few critics since seeing it who were not as big of a fans of it as I was, which confused me a bit. And I went back to see it again now that it's in theaters and I'm even more confused (laughs) because I just think this is so much fun. Like Sarah said, it is completely pulpy. There is no trying to disguise the fact that this is just a lark. This is a piece of pulp fun. There is nothing even remotely highbrow about it, even like some of the Cohen. I feel like a lot of the more recent Cohen comedies have they've been silly, but they've also tried to like say something. And this one does a little but mostly is just content to be fun and a little filthy and a little wild and for me this was exactly the blast of coen brothers style that i have been missing from my cinema is it like 100 percent grade a pure coen brothers no but it is still so it has that voice of their films in a lot of ways and it's so unique and it's so right up my alley in terms of tone. And I thought Margaret Qualley and Gerald even Swanathan were absolutely incredible. They took to this dialogue like old prose and I had a blast watching them both times. I saw this movie go on this journey I, I I had a lot of fun with it. All right. All right. Let's see if Tom felt the same. Tom, what did you think of Driveway Dolls? Well, I did feel the same, Matt. I really like what Sarah said about the uh, don't give a shit nature of it. It really has, has that kind of throwaway aspect to it that I really found uh, very attractive and a lot of fun. Uh, it kind of has one foot in, in the safe world. I mean, it's a, in one sense, it's like a familiar road movie, you know, with two gals on the run, um, and, you know, not like Thelma and Louise where they were running from the police, they're running from the kind of inept criminals that the Coen brothers specialize in. And, uh, it's all about the journey and the journey is delightful along the way and very wild sometimes. And that was the, that's the other aspect of it that I really loved. It really kind of echoed Russ Meyer movies to me, that kind of free, uh, abandoned that it's about women who really want sex. They don't care what gender they're having the person is that they're having sex with, but they want the sex on their own terms. And these two women really get that. And the women they meet along the way do. And I think that contributes to the fun. It has a real kind of 
uh, 70s independent comedy kind of vibe to it that uh, it's sort of like this is what I am you can take it or leave it but uh, I really really enjoyed it I mean it's not a perfect movie and we'll get into that a little bit later but I think there's a sense of uninhibited fun about it that I think is one of its greatest strengths yeah I'm not going to sit here and pretend that this is a great Coen brother movie I'm not going to sit here and say that this is one of the best films that I will see see this year. But did I have a fun time with its B-level entertainment that felt at times like it was an homage to like exploitation films? Yeah, absolutely I did. I, I thought that this zipped right along for a brisk 84 minutes. It didn't leave much room for me to catch my breath because I was constantly laughing. Not so much even at the lines because the lines themselves are funny and they do produce a chuckle here and there, but it's more about the actor's delivery. It's about the overall just tone of this movie that I found to be so enjoyable. It's got some pretty outrageous uh, twists that it ends up taking Uh, very much in the same vein. It reminded me of um, a a particular uh, twist that happens in burn after reading. I'll, I'll say, um, the entire cl- uh, cast, I was clearly having a blast working with this material. Uh, some of the zingers and one-liners in this are just mm, so, so well-written. Uh, but it is uneven, and it definitely is standing in the shadow of far superior Coen Brothers movies, not just in terms of the serious ones, but also in terms of the comedy, uh, comedic ones as well. But even though this doesn't contain the same level of depth or witty dialogue or over-the-top situations that the characters find themselves in compared to some of the other ones I've seen in the past, this lesbian crime comedy road trip movie was one that I still found myself walking out of it saying, okay, like, pretty inconsequential, pretty light, but I had a good time, and I'm, I'm, I'm moving on with my life. Not in a, I'm going to forget about it, it's, like, it's, it's meaningless, and I don't know why I had to sit through it, but just more like, yeah, that was good, okay, moving on. And I don't really have strong feelings about it because of that. But at the same time, I don't think this movie is like demanding that of us. I think Ethan, I'm going to I'm going to say a quote here really quick. He said back in 2018, following the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, uh, when he wanted to take a break from filmmaking, he said after 30 years, um, know that it's not it's no fun, but this is more of a job than it had been. Joel kind of felt the same way, but not to the extent that I did. It's an inevitable byproduct of aging. And the last two movies we made, me and Joel together, were really difficult in terms of production. I mean, really difficult. So if you don't have to do it, you go at a certain point, why am I doing this? And this movie to me just feels very much like the answer to someone who wanted to do something that didn't necessarily test him from a production standpoint didn't necessarily you know want to make him probably pull out his hair i mean obviously making any movie is hard but there's nothing ambitious about this to the point that it makes me go i I, like i really get the sense that this is a, a work of somebody who's trying to fall in love with the process of making a movie all over again when you put that into context greetings from evergreen podcasts We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. 
We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Yeah, there is something that is so very um, light about this movie that I think is missing even from a lot of the Coen Brothers comedies for a long time. There's nothing of consequence that happens in this movie. It is all for fun and games and silliness. And you can tell that everyone involved was having an incredible time when they were making it. And that goes a long way. Yet I don't get the feeling that uh, Ethan is sloughing off here. I mean, it's very well made. Uh, it's just like he's on vacation and having a, a great deal of fun and saying, let's make a well-made comedy that just makes people laugh. And uh, and if you forget about it an hour later, that's fine. And that's that's what I think this is. And I think it's one of its greatest strengths. I am going to push back on something here a little bit. I from from like a well-made standpoint, I gotta say, I like Ari Wagner's uh, work on some of her previous uh, films, but I, this this was a step down for me in terms of what I would expect from a Coen Brother film to look like visually speaking. Like this is not on the same level as the work that they've done with Deacons or with um, Bruno, Bruno Del Banal. Uh, yeah, it just, like, it didn't reach, like, that same level for me. And I don't know if that's because of Wegner's style as a cinematographer or if it was just more the direction and tone that Ethan wanted for it overall. I mean, this doesn't seem to me like a movie that needs a Roger Deakins-esque cinematography. Yeah, but... Burn After Reading was shot by Lubeski, and it looked pretty fantastic and didn't really call for that either. I mean, sure. I would argue that this, I don't think this looks a lot worse than Burn After Reading does. No. Granted, it's been a while since I've seen it, but. I mean, and also, too, what did, what did you guys think of, like, the editing transitions? Because. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Now, like, some of those, I was like, well, once again, is this all a deliberate attempt at just trying to feed into the overall tone and style? Or is this, like, at a certain point, it, to me, it just starts to feel like it's crossing into a line of this is becoming, like, too silly now? Yeah, I feel like it was playing up the comedy in its visual language. Also, like it reminded me about how like when we were young making our PowerPoint presentations and we would like go ham on the transitions between slides. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's not it's not as bad here, but like it really like brought me back to that and it kinda had me chuckling. So (laughs) (laughs) it is (laughs) look, okay. I love that it made the Russ Meyer homage that Tom was talking about earlier, like even more apparent, but these like psychedelic scene transitions do not fit with the tone of the rest of the film (laughs) at all. And when they finally reveal like that, they're actually part of the story. I was a little shocked 
I was impressed a little that they decided to make that like part of the actual story, but it also felt incredibly flimsy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I... like, Oh, that's what you're saying you're doing this for. Like, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. In terms mm. of like the psychedelic, parts i did not understand what it had to do with anything until i like read an article and i was like oh that's what it was trying to say like the execution felt like really flimsy to me what did the article say oh um the young guy was the um it was matt damon yeah and i did not get that at all (laughs) (laughs) Do, do you know who um hold on wait i gotta pull this up here this is very important that i get this right do you guys know who Yep, there we go. Tiffany Plastercaster was played by. Yep. Yeah. Yes, I do. And mm-hmm. when I realized it was her, I screamed in the theater. I think. <laughs> you have a character in your movie named Tiffany Plastercaster. <laughs> that should give you an idea of what kind of a movie this is uh, right off the bat here. And I think that that is the quality of the film that actually, for me, really helped this all come alive the most was the screenplay the screenplay contains that maybe not like i said maybe not the same level but there's still that faint recognition of cohen brothers wit and character and wordplay that comes through out of these actors if you get good actors involved to say these words it's going to be a good time. It may not be, like I said, an all-time great time, but it's going to be a good time. Yeah, there, there's something about it where it's it's very funny and very fun, but like it doesn't have the, I'll say, the, the snap, crackle, pop of the best Coen Brothers films. Like, the dialogue is distinctly Coen-esque, but it's not quite white at the level of like a raising Arizona or a burn after reading it moves really well it's really fast and fun and doesn't let the pace go slack but within each individual scene it just feels like something is slightly off kilter and not in a way that feels necessarily purposeful I don't know if that makes sense to anyone else. <laughs> well, do you do you feel that the film's editing may have something to do with just the overall rhythm of how the dialogue comes across? Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's the editing of the film itself or um, how the actors have been directed to read their lines or even just the dialogue itself. I'm really split on where I think the the issue comes from. I think it may just be that the dialogue is not it, – it, it's not a 10, and it's not a 9 either. No. But but for me, at least, it came pretty close to an 8. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, yeah, because, I mean, the Cohen, the Cohen Brothers comedies owe a whole lot to screwball comedies from the 30s. Uh, that rat-a-tat kind of dialogue and back and forth between people. And uh, I found that present here, even if the perhaps the jokes aren't quite as sharp as they have been in other comedies that the Coens have done, uh, It there is a certain rhythm of screwball comedies that just kind of carries me along. And I get myself into a laughing mood. And I found myself laughing, even at the not-great jokes, 
mostly because the rhythms were well done. I feel bad because there's a lot of really good lines of dialogue in this. And sometimes, like I said, sometimes it's not even meant to be a joke that's supposed to get a laugh, but it's just the way they're being said that make me laugh. And I wish I had done the due diligence to write some of them down here. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to talk in broad terms because (laughs) I don't have any of these lines written down. But they go by too fast. No, maybe it was that. Yeah, I did. Because at first I was keeping up, but then I eventually just drew my hands up in the air and was like, I I can't keep up with this. (laughs) Yeah. And it has that thing that most, if not all, Coen Brothers movies have where even the tiniest role has been cast with someone who has such a distinctive face and way of speaking that they're instantly memorable. I could tell you every supporting character in this movie because each of them just pop off the screen. The problem is that not, not all of them have great dialogue, but because they have so much character, the actors do the, the way they deliver the lines makes them pop off the screen. Who's an example in the supporting cast you think suffers from this? Oh, okay. So, um, for example, I think the two bumbling henchmen. Aw, Joey and CJ? No. Yeah. I, I Okay, so I think that most of the time they're really good, but some of the dialogue, the, it just doesn't work. See, I, I find that CJ Wilson, I personally found that his reactions yes. to what Joey was uh, Joey's character's name is Arliss, and then the other guy's name is Flint. And Arliss is like constantly like lecturing Flint on how being a people person and talking to people is a better way to get what they want out of this uh, task that they've been given by their boss, played by Coleman Domingo, to chase down uh, these two girls who have driven off in the car with, uh, let's just say, their packet, unbeknownst to them, items in the back of the car, <laughs> <laughs> and. I I think that like all the lecturing and the way that just um the way that Joey like delivers like all of those lines of dialogue, all you have to do is look at CJ's face and see how fed up he is with everything. And to me, that's where like the real comedy comes from in their interactions together. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it comes from more of their expressions on their faces and how much personality they have as actors than the actual dialogue that they have for the characters. I mean, if anyone I think is underserved in this, I think it's actually Coleman Domingo. I thought he yeah. could have been given a little bit more to do here. He, But again, he, it's one of those things where like his persona on screen is such a perfect fit for this character. And he goes so big with it that the character works, even though it doesn't have the level of dialogue lines that, like, say, Bill Camp has as Curly, who had me in stitches every time he was on screen. <laughs> I, I think Bill Camp has some of the funniest moments in this entire movie, actually, just by the way that he is, once again, <laughs> delivering the lines. The lines are simple. The lines are easy. But yeah. it's all about the delivery that counts. And being this... I, I, I don't even really know how to describe uh, Curly so much. Like He's <laughs> polite and well-mannered and very 
precise about language that other people use. And then, like, they'll say, he'll say, don't call me Curly. And, and like, clearly his name tag says Curly. <laughs> and they're like, your name's not Curly. We just met. It's it's rude and informal. <laughs> it's, <laughs> and it's Curly with a double E. I love that. <laughs> Once again, th- this movie needed more Bill Camp. Yeah, yeah. I think you have a point, Matt, about that. Uh, Domingo, uh, because really it's Joey and and CJ really kind of became the, become the main antagonist. And Domingo is uh, he's there with his presence and his wardrobe. And uh, like Vivian, he is reading uh, Henry James at the same time in the back of his limo. Uh, but I just wish he had more dialogue because whenever uh, Domingo is given dialogue in this, he nails it. And I just kind of wanted more of that. Yeah, I agree, Tom. But speaking about another supporting cast member, Matt Damon, I feel like when I think about this film, like 10 years from now, I'm just going to only remember his part in the movie and how like the MacGuffin like ties to him and how it's kind of iconic. I don't know. So it's hilarious. <laughs> it's so Sarah. Good. <laughs> yes. His part. In the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, it's interesting because I actually think as villains, uh, Joey and CJ and Coleman are actually kind of on the weaker side of things for me. And Matt Damon is actually like, spoiler alert, the true villain of this movie, which adds a whole other layer to what I think even Cohen And Trisha Cook wanted to say here with this film, which is uh, this is a very, very left leaning pro Democrat uh, movie. Uh, Matt Damon's playing a senator who is a Republican. And (laughs) oh, my God. Uh, So (laughs) he he has a. um... When he was a boy. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, It's like, how do I describe this? Um... (laughs) He has an exact replica of his penis as it made as a dildo, okay? <laughs> there was a cast that was made and But it's not just his. It's also like what four or five other famous people's dicks. <laughs> a Supreme Court justice, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. <laughs> All made by Tiffany Plastercaster, <laughs> aka that horny bitch Miley Cyrus. And it's funny because, like, this completely overshadows the fact that there's also a, a human's head in the trunk of the car, too. Yeah. Well, Pedro Pascal is living for his little three-minute scene at the top of this movie, and his face is so good. I mean, like, seriously, easiest paycheck he's ever collected, maybe? <laughs> maybe. and But honestly, like, just the expression on his face in that first scene was enough for me to be like, oh, okay, here we go. I know exactly what tone this movie is going for. Oh, I appreciated the Game of Thrones reference, if anything. Yeah. <laughs> that had <laughs> that me howling like, with laughter. But yeah, no, he doesn't really have uh, much of a role in this. Keep in mind, this movie is 84 minutes long. <laughs> it's very, very short. Most of it is devoted to... Jamie and Marion, played by Margaret Qualley and Geraldine uh, Vinswampian. And I think they're both excellent here. I love their chemistry. I love the way they bounce off each other, how Qualley's got the more obnoxious, louder performance. And Vinswampian has like this 
um, much more reserved but dignified performance that also showcases vulnerability. And I think in the moments where they come together a bit more and, you know, they're not so much rattling off these very eccentric uh, pieces of dialogue, but more so uh, just kind of slowing down the tempo a little bit. Like, I, I actually did find reason to care about these characters and this movie outside of the comedy and the jokes. Yeah, I I love the, you know, it's not just about them just driving to Tallahassee. It's just what happens to their characters along the way that I found really surprisingly sweet. And I was just so, I was just rooting for them. And yeah, I love their chemistry together and how opposite their characters are and what each character brought out in the other. I've heard uh, some people describe Margot Qualley's performance in this as a little too try-hard. I don't really share that same sentiment here. I, I actually thought that she was doing exactly what she needed to do to be a distinct contrast to what Geraldine was bringing to her character. Like, yes, I understand that Jamie is all over the place and has this kind of she is giving butch lesbian realness 100 percent all the way through this movie well she's just so much more open about who she is and is not afraid to just be herself oh yeah she's very self-confident and self-possessed person and the, i love the contrast between her uh between margaret qualley and uh geraldine in in this movie i think it's part it's really the end that makes the movie run, I think, is their chemistry together and how well they play off of each other. Their energies are really great. And like Sarah said, it, it gets surprisingly sweet between them, um, despite how like, kind of filthy the movie is. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that, too, because it's unexpected. I did not expect the movie to go where it went with these characters. And it was it was sweet and silly and sexy and a, a little vulgar in ways that were a lot of fun. Yep, I be totally believe that these two characters were friends, as yeah. different as they are. Because I think in, in Quali's uh, character, Jamie, there's a certain kindness that she has. There's a scene where they have kind of a sexual rondelay with a bunch of cheerleaders <laughs> and everyone's taking turns. But when, when uh, Jamie and Vivian uh, come come together, and Vivian is does not want to make out with her friend. There's a there's a there's like I'm going to take care of you look on on Quali's face mm -hmm. that was just so generous and so kind that that's exactly the kind of sweetness Dan that you're talking about that I found really drew me even closer to her. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen a lot of people like you know bashing the accent that. Quali is is using here and you know what if any if ever a role called for a daniel craig as benoit blanc over the top southern fried ham accent yeah. it is this one okay and i was here for it all the way through it is big and bold just like the character she's playing and i had a lot of fun listening to her deliver all that dialogue in that accent. I mean, that's where I kind of fall on it, too. It's like, for the type of movie this is, the over-the-top nature of her accent fits the character. It makes sense for this type of film. In a different type of film, I would question the choice, but it is a choice. 
I don't think that it is one that um, should be so much the brunt of everyone's criticism regarding her performance in this movie. I actually think that she is a very versatile actress. And, you know, for a little while there, I, I didn't feel... Like, I, I definitely looked at her as, okay, a little bit of a, you know, she's a nepo kid and everything, and she's had a couple of, uh, you know, standout performance, well, standout characters, I'll say. Like, her performance isn't, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or showing up in something like The Nice Guys never really blew me away. It really wasn't until I saw her in Sanctuary and Stars at Noon last year where it's, like, both of those performances back-to-back like that. And then going from that into seeing uh, seeing Made, I was like, oh, okay. Like I think I'm I think I'm getting it now because I remember my first introduction to her was in The Leftovers, and she was not the standout for me in that show at all. In fact, I actually thought she was one of the weaker elements. But I think maybe with experience, uh, she's getting better. She's taking more risks, and I love that for her. You know, I I think that she. I mean, is this like going to be like one of her all time great performances? No. But did she get me to laugh at a couple of her lines? And did I think she was a magnetic presence throughout? Yes. Yeah, I felt that her energy and like screwball kind of um, delivery helped also to make the make the film feel so like zippy and quick. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which um, I really loved. I agree. Yeah, I think her performance definitely set the tone for or the rhythm, rather, for how this movie was edited. Uh, and, you know, then you have someone like Beanie Feldstein, who is who is not given, like, these moments to slow down or be soft and, like, display, like, vulnerability for her character. She is just Fuck no. loud, hard-hitting, and coming in like a wrecking ball in every single scene that she has. <laughs> she was my MVP of the movie, honestly. Like, she was my scene-stealer of this movie, I I thought she was I just laughed whenever she came on screen that energy that she had is it's that book smart vibe except she is giving even less fucks here <laughs> than in that movie and I I was here for it every time she was on screen I love that her dog's name is Alice B. Talkless I love that little sassy haircut she has I think that she's hysterical I was living for every moment she was on screen when she whips out that mace and sprays I, I mean the thing that got me about her was that her character's motivation in this movie is so relatable she just wants yes. to get rid of a non-stop barking dog <laughs> and the wall dildo uh, oh yeah the wall dildo there's a lot of dildos in this movie there's a lot of dildos in this movie and i i don't know if lesbians are so much about dildos sarah um, as they are here. I, You're acting like Sarah's like in a group chat and can like <laughs> survey a bunch of people over here. <laughs> Dan, I'm very much like um, Geraldine's character. Okay. Where it's like I'm a lesbian in theory and not in practice. So I, don't, oh. I can't really contribute. There we to go. <laughs> I will say this. Maybe the hardest I laughed at throughout this entire movie was a gag involving one of the dildos. And it was when the housekeeper wrapped a little bow around it yeah. and put oh. it in the bathroom. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I, I roared. Die. 
I mean, I, I think the scene transitioned into the next scene and I was still laughing. Like I, I could not stop. It was that was a really, really, really good gag. That was fantastic. It's so the best because you're not expecting it. <laughs> no, it's the best visual gag of 2024 so far. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Uh, and then, yeah, like Matt Damon, going back to him really quick here. I actually think he had my second favorite funniest moment in this movie where <laughs> it's the climactic scene where he's opposite uh, both Margaret Quilly and Geraldine uh, at the table. And they're involved in blackmailing him here for the dildos. And I can't once again, I apologize. I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said something to the effect of how this country used to be something and now it's not <laughs> and things are changing or something along those lines. And he got like really profoundly upset and sad about this to the point that I was like, this is so, so, so funny. Just watching this guy take this moment so seriously when it's so unserious. Yeah. There were, there were shades of his uh, Brett Kavanaugh impression from SNL. And I really enjoyed oh that. My God. Oh my yeah. God. Wow. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) It was was perfect. Again, just like brilliant casting of him in this character. And I I must have forgotten that he was in the trailers for this movie because when they flashed to one of these characters' campaign posters, I wrote down in my notes, Matt Damon in caps with question marks. And (laughs) I I think it, it... it's glorious casting, especially when you realize um, what the character's purpose is in the movie and what his story is. I, it, it's incredibly smart, and he's so funny in a very like casual way. And like you were saying, Matt, the satire. I, I think also like I, I've seen a lot of people like commenting on the film's setting. It's set in. 1999 and I've seen a lot of people be like it's only like that so that the characters don't have cell phones blah 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 but it's also important that this is on the cusp of the 2000 election I think where a lot of these right left political divides that are so stark today really started to foment and I, I don't think it's an accident at all that this was set in 1999. And I don't think it was just so that the characters wouldn't have cell phones. There is commentary going on about the political stuff that was happening at that time. It's not as deep uh, as some of the Cohen's other movies, but it's there. Yeah, I think that the timing of the setting is is also, I think, um, Dan, there's a, a little bit of Y2K yeah, uh, about it. There's there. If you can remember, or, you know, there was this anxiety that maybe the world was going to end. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> we're not going to we're not going to make it. And I think that there was a certain kind of oh fuck it, let's just let ourselves go. If the world is going to end, we'll do it. And I think that that creeps in a little bit here as well. I look at the whole oh this is just being done so that they can't use cell phones thing as kind of like a so what. Yeah. Sort of reaction. Yeah. And I say this because it makes it harder. It makes it more fun for the characters to have to actually drive around, find a pay phone. Like they actually have to put in real work to accomplish their goals. And not everything can just be solved by looking everything up on the Internet. 
And for me, it's nostalgic to kind of look back on a time where we didn't have those benefits. And I do think the setting is important to all the things you guys are talking about thematically as well. Um, so there is like a real reason behind this. But the one thing that's actually more on my mind that I wanted to ask you guys about is what did you all think about the connections to Henry James and his work layered throughout the movie? I, I did like it from a like road trip, you know, picaresque picture of America sort of thing that Henry James often did. But I also think that Henry James is a very different storyteller than Ethan Cohen. <laughs> right. And I liked the contrast, I guess. But I didn't really I was really kind of for the longest time I was like, really Henry James in this movie? Why? Well, you know, you look at the outline for the Europeans, which is the book that uh, that Geraldine's character is reading in the movie. And it's basically a comedy about uh, two people who visit Europe and how they are different from their uh, relatives who are living in this new world of, um, of well, of New England. Yeah. And so when I look at then these two characters in this movie, Jamie and Marion, and I guess like he's trying to draw some sort of a parallel here between like two out lesbians in a time when it still wasn't technically okay to be out. Um, you know, like they have a couple of moments where like, she's wondering, uh, Jamie, Margaret Qualley's character is wondering like, do you guys accept the rainbow card and things like that? Um, <laughs> so I, I think that that's what he was going for i don't know if, it, if there's much more to it than that you know I, I i i will admit the end of this movie where the title card revealed itself made me go to google afterwards and look up to see wait a minute did henry james actually write a like a short story or something called drive away dykes like i was like i, I need to know this <laughs> no nope, that's just the original title of this movie <laughs> right so i i did find that the credit to him was a little odd yeah but it's interesting too that uh coleman domingo's character is reading the golden bowl uh-huh uh which is more about fathers and daughters and uh, it, it, it i didn't necessarily say think that there's a correlation there uh, I, what i got from him doing it is that there's kind of a link an intellectual link between his character and and marion's character in that uh, they're in this this crazy uh, world um, and they are stepping back and contemplating life a little more than the people, the crazy people around them. Yeah. I also um, going back to the film setting, I read in an interview with Trisha Cook that she also kind of wanted this film to be like an ode to like the lesbian bar scene, which yes. like we don't really have anymore. Like I've never been to one, but like in the film, you know, we got the butter churn and like the she shed and <laughs> I feel like having it set in like the nineties would have made more sense in that regard. But yeah, I yeah. thought that was interesting. I got more chuckles out of the butter churn at this <laughs> bar. <laughs> so good. Also, everyone, uh, seek out and find and watch the documentary Small Town Gay Bar. So, Dan, you said your favorite performance was Beanie Feldstein. Sarah, who was your favorite performance? Oh, that's tough. I feel like I really liked um, Margaret Qualley's performance. 
um, just about how much she set the tone and just her overall kind of energy and delivery. It was it was fun to watch. Yeah, she really worked for me here. Uh, Tom, what about you? For me, it's Bill Camp. I I want a curly movie now, <laughs> please. <laughs> I maybe my favorite line delivery in the whole thing is when I think it's after Beanie Feldstein comes and like looks at the driveway shop, and he's still on the floor. <laughs> he's lying there and sees the flashlight come in. <laughs> he says in the most pathetic voice. <laughs> Will no one save Curly? <laughs> die. I was like, wow, they must have beat him up pretty hard for him to still be lying there after all of a sudden. He was probably just tired. He wanted to take a nap, you know? Right. <laughs> I'm trying to think what my favorite line is. I, You know, there's so many good lines. You're a day late and a dick short might be. That might be up there. <laughs> That one I am absolutely ad- adopting into my everyday usage or daily in short. <laughs> I'm sure that there's got to be like at least seven lines that Margaret Quayley says in this, but I can't, for the life of me, I just can't think of what they are because like I said, I didn't write them down. The one quote I did write down comes from Beanie Feldstein's character, like at the very beginning where she's like, oh, if we put a meter on like Jamie's pussy, we'd all retire or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god (laughs) and i had two i like from margaret was like one is like i ain't talking through my vulva here (laughs) (laughs) and then the other one was about uh you know people who uh have sex and run and she says a finger jiggling your clit and adios yeah jesus (laughs) and it's like the way that she delivers it too with that like twang and her accent and everything and it's just like so as matter of fact ah I love the attitude of the character. I love that she's so bold and fearless and she's just like flaunting her energy out there for everyone to feel and to grasp onto. And she doesn't care if you don't. I, I, uh, I'm i really, really taken by what she's doing in this movie, even if, like I said, you know, is it going to be like recognized as some of like the best work of her career? Probably not. But at least for me, it adds more layers to what it is that she can do. Absolutely. And the fact that it's not just the big comedy that she's serving here, like she absolutely made very big choices with this character and they pay off comedically. But in the scenes when she has to dial that back and be more soft and sweet and intimate those scenes also work incredibly well because of her performance and how well she's able to modulate and that was where i really i think tom said this earlier like that was really when you fall in love with the characters and why i think the movie works so well for me yeah that whole scene that they have where they're out to dinner and they're drinking a nice champagne i love that so much i i love her in every moment of that yeah All right, let's get over to final thoughts. Anything that we didn't mention that you want to bring up, I'll toss it over to uh, Sarah first. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week, wherever you get your podcasts. 
No, I can't really think of anything. I feel like we touched on everything very well. All right. All right. Dan, what about you? One of my favorite lines of dialogue. They're not the Secret Service and we're not Chelsea Clinton. (laughs) Yes. Perfect. There are also particularly Matt Damon's delivery of the line, I used to believe in the unfettered free market. Oh, that's that's the line I was thinking of. There you go. That was what it was. (laughs) It's just really, it really made me laugh. Yes. A lot. Same. <laughs> there are some of the editing transitions that, even not the psychedelic ones, that I I just don't think were, they needed to be tightened or something. They didn't fully work. But, I mean, this is a movie about two lesbians on the run with a suitcase full of dildos and I just think that's sweet and fun. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I think the movie does allow for itself to take some risks with, you know, some more of its corny elements. Um, and that extends to the scene transitions in the editing. But yet what Sarah said earlier, I think is pretty accurate. There was just something about the overall quality of them that just seemed very amateurish and didn't feel like something I would expect from a Coen brother film. Yeah. And I think that I, I think based on the fact that Ethan has been very open about that, the fact that they were inspired by Russ Meyer and a lot of these sixties and seventies B movies, I do think that that is somewhat intentional. Sure. But I also don't think that it fully works in context of the movie. Mm. So there's that. I just had a lot of fun with this and I think that every, again, like every person in this cast is so memorable. And that's one of the things that makes all of the Coen brothers movies so memorable and so um, successful on rewatches, I think. Except for the lady killers. That one has not still in, uh, improved for me on a rewatch all these years later. <laughs> yeah. Well, I haven't wanted to rewatch that one either. So no, because I, I, I did rewatch it thinking like, oh, maybe this will be better than I remembered it oh. being. Nope. Still, still no. their worst movie. Yep. In my opinion. But I do agree that a lot of movies that even on the first viewing for them, sometimes I'll have a feeling about it and I'll be like, eh, I don't really know. And then I'll watch it again. Like hail Caesar. And I'll be like, oh, no, shit, everybody was on to something. And I I clearly wasn't on that wavelength. But I think I'm getting closer to it now. And then the same thing applies with, like, Intolerable Cruelty, which was another one where on first viewing I was like, not really feeling this. But over time, it's become one of my more delightful Coen Brother films to watch. (laughs) You know, would I put it up there with something like No Country for Old Men? No. But still – like this, fun to watch. Yeah, and I think that if you press me, I think that I genuinely think that that will happen a lot to a lot of people with this movie, that they will watch it again some years down the line and realize like, oh no, this is this is a lot of fun and it's incredibly funny and silly and strangely sexy and sweet. Yeah. Tom, what about you? Any final thoughts? Uh, well, if I do have a, a problem with the film, at least in its terms of its pacing, I felt like the ending was rushed. Mm. And uh, with all the time taken to characterize the bad guys, whom we really kind of like by the end, um, the way they're dispatched is kind of quick. 
I was kind of hoping for a little more melodramatic end to the. It's not even so much that it's quick. I I agree with you. I do. But for me, what actually stung more about that scene, uh, that one scene in particular. Yeah. I did not feel that I had gotten to a point with those characters where I felt like they deserved that. No. And it kind of rubbed me the wrong way that I was actually feeling like Coleman Domingo, for example. I don't think we ever see him kill anybody in this movie. No. And the two bumbling guys, Arliss and Flint, they're kind of inept. And I just, I don't know. There was something about like th- that scene, the way it unfolded, that I just didn't, I don't know. Yeah. I, it didn't leave me feeling good. So I'll, just, I'll just leave it at that. The punishment didn't fit the crime. Yeah. But, you know, and it wraps it up very quickly. And granted, it's an 84-minute movie, but it just it just seemed to be I wanted a little bit more uh, from all of that, especially that scene. Um, that being said, a couple of couple of moments that just uh, like the psychedelic stuff or not, I got to say, I was mesmerized when they had that psychedelic pizza. Oh, oh, that was good. Just, uh, <laughs> what? It's what you want to have. You know, it's like the munchies when you're on acid or something. I just really kind of was mesmerized visually by that. And I got to say, I like the needle drops a lot, particularly Linda Ronstadt. And Blue Bayou. It just fit fit perfect. That was perfect song yeah. choice. Yeah. 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 So that's it for me. So if you want to talk about a punishment that does fit the crime, the newspaper clipping at the end of the film from Matt Damon that says, Senator shot outside lesbian bar, found carrying plaster penis and severed head. And then it just says, <laughs> I can explain, says Senator. That's perfect. <laughs> Iconic. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was really good. <laughs> um, the psychedelic stuff, I I didn't have a problem with it in theory, but the execution of it left a lot to be desired. I feel like the Coen Brothers nailed psychedelic stuff so much better in previous films that they've done in the past. You know, it kind of had like this kaleidoscopic visual language to it that also seemed very cheap and I once again can understand if that's like the style that they were going for but then again I also didn't understand what that had anything to do with the rest of the movie because the movie is not about like drugs or anything of that sort so I was like why are we supposed to be like tripping balls right now when nothing else is calling for this you know I mean pizza I guess sure (laughs) but yeah I mean that was my thing with them it just didn't feel integrated into the tone of the rest of the movie especially early on no no it did not for me either uh outside of that though once again enjoyed myself had a good time 84 minutes long even if it was really shitty i would definitely still give it some credit for at least not wasting too much of my time here i think people are being a little too harsh on this movie i really do um but at the same time i do think it is one that We'll get better uh, with time. Not better in the sense, like I said, this is not rising to the top of anyone's favorite Coen brother film list. Uh, This is not one of those types of films, but I definitely think some people are being, I don't know. I don't know if it's because they're split. I don't know if it's because the movie is just taking a lot of big swings with its content and its characters This may be controversial, but I think that if this film had been presented to everyone as a Coen Brothers film, as opposed to a film by a Coen brother, I think they would have been more positive on it. Yeah, 
I'm actually of the opposite. I think it would have been trashed even more. You think? Yes, I do. Mm. But I do think that Joel's involvement would have given the movie maybe some more creative juice, I'll say, to allow for this to go down easier for some critics because it's very clear after having now seen tragedy Macbeth and driveway dolls, you can see which one is the artistic one and which one is the more comedic humorous one. And by all accounts from everything I've read from interviews over the years, that's exactly how they're described by everybody. Yeah. He, Joel is definitely the more visual guy and Ethan is the more writerly guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did and this isn't true for all the negative reviews I've seen, but I, I've read some negative reviews that struck me as the writer being very uncomfortable with the amount of lesbian sex in it. Mm. I mean, that's also a part of it, too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe we're still feeling that way in 2024 about this kind of stuff. But, but yeah, those people are out there. Yeah, that's kind of what I was saying about how, like, straight peoples always, always have their trashy, raunchy comedies. And everyone, like, loves them or whatever. And then when the lesbians do, everyone's like, nah, this is garbage. I'm like, well, <laughs> I think you're just homophobic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is a scene early on where I guess it's a co-worker. Yeah, at um, at Marion's uh, day job. <gasps> oh, and he tries to ask her out. Right, yes. right. Oh, my God. And she's like, I have an engagement. And he's like, people don't really like call them engagements. And he's basically like being this chauvinistic prick to her because she's clearly turning him down and she's doing it in the nicest way possible. And then she finally like just has it with him when he says anywho. And she's like, please don't use that expression. And he's like, it's not an expression. Well, what is it? a word <laughs> please don't use that word <laughs> and then what does it like end with again it's like do i tell you how to speak and he's like uh well yeah <laughs> the only place they use the word engagement is in henry james <laughs> is it really <laughs> no I, but that's the kind of word that would be used in a henry james novel so i can understand yeah. marion using it yeah that's that's true i don't think i have anything else here um overall i enjoyed it it was funny. It made me laugh. I really dug the energy that the actors brought to it. I, I've got I've got nitpicks, and then I've got some other bigger issues with it overall. Uh, but I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. Sarah, what about you? Yeah, same. A very strong 7 out of 10 for me also. Tom? 7 out of 10 for me. Made me laugh. Dan? Exactly the same. 7 out of 10. Wow. Okay. And I think it's very safe to say no Oscar potential with this film. Although, don't be surprised if we get to, like, first half of the year and people are saying, oh, what are, like, some of the best movies from the first half of the year so far? And this, like, pops up in that conversation. But I can't see this uh, making its way into really any – I mean, I don't know. Do you think Mark McQualey could get a Golden Globe nomination for this? I don't personally think so, but no. what do you think? no. No, it, no. It, it would have to be an enormous hit, and it isn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else outside of that? I mean, I don't see any other possibilities here. No. No. It's a shame, but not every Coen Brothers film needs to be an awards contender, so that's totally fine. Mm-mm. All right. Sarah, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Mildred Spears. Dan Bear? 
You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film, on Letterboxd and Post at Dance and Dan. Tom O'Brien. And you can find me on Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We're proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you all so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. grown up me too yep me too but you know these days being a grown-up can really suck luckily we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation we had video arcades and also some of the best tv and movies ever made we lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics the list goes on and on yep generation x exactly and we're gen x grown-up every week the gen x grown-up podcast explores media tech toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.